to the Four for Friday podcast. I'm Will Robb. He's Michael Girdley. We also have Chris Davis, our second ever guest today. Uh, Michael, would you like to walk everybody through the format? Yeah, super good. I'm so stoked that we have a guest. The guests are fun. So format for Four for Friday, same every week. Uh, we cover four different topics as uh, phrases, questions, and uh, we get in and out 20, 25 minutes. We cover topics around life, business, general thinking, how to be a better human, all that kind of stuff. So uh, Sometimes we go 30 fun. minutes. Sometimes we go 30 minutes, and so far with guests, we've gone a little bit long, so we'll see what happens today, uh, usually because our guests uh, have great stuff to say, so it's great to hear from them. So, uh, Cousin Chris, we'd love to hear hear the hear the short summary of, of who you are, maybe introduce yourself. Uh, glad to be here. Chris Davis. I am the director of Force Lacrosse uh, near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, program six travel teams, 120 some boys doing travel, and any given year, coach about 400, 425 kids through leagues, clinics, travel, etc. Before that, school teacher for 19 years. Before that, uh, adjunct college professor for three years. So, a lot of education, a lot of teaching. Super cool. All right. Well, let's get into our. Our first question, Will, are you going first or am I going first? I'm going first. I'll, I'll jump in. Last week we, we asked uh, what city would you short as if you could long or short cities as if they were stocks. So this week uh, we will ask what city do you go long? Interesting. Interesting. So my, I, I guess I'll go, I'll go with that. I, I think it's so interesting the way the things that typically attract people to cities uh, those amenities are shifting, right? Like, you know, the New York, the New York value proposition was you can live in this place with a lot of opportunity. The city itself is really not that nice, but the amenities of being that packed in with so many people, uh, smart people, capable people, and all the bars and restaurants and things you go to, like, like those, those unfair advantages of New York are just going away. Um, so I, I think it's actually the things that are getting reshuffled now is kind of how easy it is to live makes a, a city more attractive. And also, you know, in my mind, how close you are to good weather and, and good natural like attractions. So, and you know, my family's in Colorado right now to escape the, the Texas heat. So I do feel like the cities with great weather and great proximal kind of amenities are going to be really strong. Um, and, and that's for one reason, like I, I'm actually, I think LA is going to be a huge winner out of all this. I think lots of people are going to shuffle their way out of like, like the, the cities that are crowded or not good living like New York or San Francisco and find their way down to LA where it's like you walk outside and it's gorgeous every day. And you think the idea that a lot of the, the living is kind of suburban residential with commuting times and cars, you think that will bother people less than it might have before? Oh, for sure. Well, because you're, you're, you know, until COVID goes away, you're not commuting anywhere. And, you know, it, it, and I felt myself doing it. Like I live in a, I live in a, a very satisfactory house. I felt myself being like looking at other houses being like, well, if I'm going to spend all day in one of these houses, like, like, like I should upgrade to a nicer one um, just to make it, you know, even more comfortable since you're there 24 hours a day. And I think compared to these like more packed in cities, you know, LA and San Diego, even though they're pricey, you know, they offer just that suburban feel that's just really nice. Um, I do think it's also interesting how, you know, the suburbs came about 
and they were an echo of kind of the last couple of pandemics that we had, right, in the 50s and, and in the 20s, you know, we had these, or the 1918 flu pandemic, like, the suburbs started to get really appealing. I think they're going to get even more appealing, and no place is more suburb with nice weather than L.A. Okay. Chris, do you have some thoughts? Um. I don't disagree with what he's saying. I've never been to LA, but everybody that I've always known that has gone out there is it's shockingly expensive, vapid, and unbelievable amounts of traffic. <laughs> Other than that, it's great. Other than that, hey, thumbs up. Um, hey, all you, all you vapid people, Chris doesn't want to live in your city. <laughs> exactly. I think uh, things like, like a Boise, Idaho, like I'd kind of look off the grid even a little bit more. Where you've got, you know, I, I threw Boise out, but we could all name kind of mid-sized. They've done some work on the cities to make them a little bit nicer downtowns, but you can still live in the borderline country. Um, flying isn't as important. Work from home, obviously, is at least a year here. If not, companies figuring out it could be more. Um, There's a big pitch the other day, not by me, uh, that Cleveland, because if you do your list of like, you know, no fires, no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no earthquakes, amazing hospitals on the water, can get to nature within 20 minutes of downtown. Um, so somebody's making a pitch of we were one of the 10 cities that were just a safe, livable, suburban, affordable, any amenity you want, just not sexy. So no, like no hazard of natural disasters other than lake effects now. Virtually <laughs> none. Right. Once they figured out how to not have the river burn in the seventies, yeah, we've moved on. There's uh, there's no natural disasters except for the fact you're living in Cleveland. That's well, no way. Like I said, I, I, I'm not necessarily pitching it. I, mean, I, I, like, I, I love Boise as a pick. Uh, my my wife brought up Boise as kind of the next Denver when we were talking about this question previewing. So it wasn't being super random. Yeah. That. Look, Look, I think that's a really good point. There is a whole category of those cities, uh, yeah. Boise, uh, Northwest Arkansas, so like Bentonville in that area, like gorgeous, relatively good weather because they're at altitude. Uh, you hear similar stuff about places like Asheville, North Carolina, these kind of cities yep. yeah, where, where there's just enough. I think Asheville's almost like spot on to what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, before I put my answer in, uh, I have a couple of comments. One, I was thinking about this, and I realized that this question doesn't have to be purely hypothetical. Uh, I mean, we have a, a very abstract idea of whether a city is improving or not improving when we talk about shorting or longing it. But if we chose a benchmark, uh, say, for example, housing prices, we actually could try to short or long different cities, different cities with... Um, there are derivative products that you could get involved with with the Case-Shiller Index. Mm. Um, I don't recommend this. I don't think it's a great idea, and I'm not going to go out and try it. Uh, but you could you could certainly try to manufacture this idea using uh, an ISDA contract and derivative products yep. based off an index. So I thought that was fun to think about. Um, what so, else? Can, also, I want to change my answer from last week. I think I think San Jose was a, a weak answer and not thought through enough. I would like to short Houston instead of San Jose. All right. Uh, but for my city that I'd like to go long in, uh, I thought about Boise a little bit, but I'm going to go with uh, Stockholm, Sweden. 
That's my city. <laughs> uh, really nice city. One of the fastest city growing, fastest growing cities in Europe. Clean city. Uh, a lot of awards for green technologies and environmental improvements in Stockholm in recent years. Uh, good healthcare system. Present mistake notwithstanding. And, uh, and I think they're about to experience a, a very big intergenerational wealth transfer. So I think it'll be a prosperous city. Nice. Boom. All <laughs> right. On that note, that was very, very good answer. So on that note, let's move on to our second question. Yep. Uh, so this is from me, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So this is a question I, I posed on Twitter, which is, which is something that's been fascinating me lately. And Will, you and I talked about this the other day. Uh, it's this idea of creating simple, easy to follow rules for yourself that make the hard choices in life easier, right? So the question is written as, can simple, easy rules make the hard decisions easy? So I, to illustrate this, the simple rule is, like I've told, I, I've never gotten a car loan in my life. I've always saved up for the money I need to get a car. And if I only had a certain amount of money, I just got a beater car. Uh, and that was just the nicest car I could get. And that simple rule of just saying like, I'm never going to get a car loan has made it really easy for me never to buy an expensive depreciating asset, right? The prospect now of getting a $50,000 or $70,000 car, I'm like, oh my God, that's so much money. Like I couldn't, I imagine myself trying to write the check for that. And it's like, oh, never want to do it. So curious to see how you guys think about this. And it's just like, you know, is this something that's just new to me and I'm a 45 year old man, but it's obvious to everybody else or is it, how do you guys think about it? When you, when you first put it down, my reaction was, well, probably yes, yeah, simple rules would make hard decisions easier, but it feels too big and abstract. Now that you give an example, I, I have like three examples uh, like that for myself. Yeah. Uh, n never own a boat. <laughs> okay. Do not become a wine connoisseur. And don't take up golf as a hobby. Oh, all right. Chris, I think likes golf, so he, he wouldn't he wouldn't choose that one for himself. But yeah, that's my nice couple that I think of. I've got a. I actually I'm like I, I'm with Will. I when I first heard you state the question, I thought, well, sure. There's things throughout my life, or my life as a dad, my wife life as a husband, coach, whatever, where you kind of have to have not necessarily hard and fast rules, but you have to have a set of principles that makes it easier to handle the bigger things. My counter argument throughout my life is that I get very frustrated with people and the world trying to make every situation black and white. And I tend to, because people are afraid of what I call the gray, and I have lived my life and tend to really believe strongly in the gray, and it doesn't mean I'm wishy-washy or can get pulled like, you know, like a flag in the wind. You know, Will says, here's how this is going to go. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds great. And Michael's like, well, this is how it should go. I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds even more greater. -er. And, you know, so I'm not saying that, but there's so few times in my life with really, like you said, big stuff where a hard and fast rule would have helped it. seeing a couple different angles has helped me make decisions and if I'm making any sense. You're making no, I sense. I, I, I think the gray is not just gray, right? It's not the average of black and white, but it's, it's also nuance. It's detail. For instance, there's no such thing as gray hair. And that's true. As I have very, very gray going on white hair. 
if you look at hair up close, there's either white hairs or black hairs. There, are, there is no gray hair. You don't have a transitional state of hair. And, but they all commingle and create, you know, didn't think that analogy was coming up, did you? Well, we could call back to a previous episode of the podcast. At, at what point do you have enough uh, white hairs or gray hairs to justify just shaving your head entirely? I've got a luscious head of hair. I'll never have to shave. I've got, if I lost three quarters of my hair, I'd have a full head of hair. Okay. Unfortunately, Michael, you're outvoted on that one again. Oh, that's very kind. I used to have great hair as a young man. We'll, we'll kind of test Although, that. As your photo just came up, I'm like totally in one of those Scott Van Pelt tweets where like, look, Scott Van Pelt's here on the podcast. <laughs> so funny. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear your viewpoint on world that, you know, it's default, it's default gray, right? It's the messy middle as opposed to being black and white. And, you know, if I think about messy businesses, like you are in the one of the messiest businesses I can think of, right? You're dealing with 400 different personalities who yeah. are children and their parents who often act like more of children. Like, like you're one of the few people I know that has been as successful as you sound like you are in this kind of club sport thing. And, and I, my suspicion is, is that it's hard to deal with all those personalities, but your rule of looking at everything that it's going to be messy and it's in the middle somewhere, you know, is probably critical to your success. So I, I would say it sounds like the whole way you're living is exactly the question I'm saying. Like you've just made this easy way of looking at the world and uh, that's, that's made something really hard. It sounds like relatively easy for you. So you're saying Chris's guiding principle is it's messy and complicated. Get used to it. That's the simple rule that helps him through. Yeah. And then everything, every time he deals with some irate parent or some kid that's not getting to play enough or some guy, some kid who, who shows up, you know, smelling like alcohol to the, to the practice, you know, like, which I'm, I, I guess has happened, but like all of that, those are hard things, but Chris's mindset is, Hey, this is going to be messy. You know, it's part of the yeah. deal. Well, that's a good yeah transition to our next question which is how has covid changed the youth club sport business um profoundly would be the easiest word to throw out there i mean my my wife is a school administrator so had to finish the school year virtual and make sure everybody was taken care of you know first week can everybody get food second week oh my gosh, how do we deal with, you know, everything from the autistic kids to blind and are they getting the help they need to function to Uber rural, we got to set up a Wi-Fi hotspot in a school bus in the school parking lot so they can drive up in their cars and do their work, you know, in the parking lot. So she had like the day one boots on the ground reaction. And then there was the middle period over the summer trying to wrap your head around what comes next. And that obviously is, really shockingly sped up in the last month, three weeks with the whole push to open schools and what she's had to deal with. The whole time when she's saying, look how hard it is for me, and it is very, it's unbelievable what she has to deal with. I'm deciding, could we run this clinic tonight? Our only spot to do it is our indoor facility. Is there enough ventilation? Are things clean? Can we even do it inside? Are the kids going to be okay? But I'm, they're running around, you know, giving off heavy air as they breathe. And then I'm walking through that air, you know, do I limit it to 10? Is 10 any safer than 20? 
Um, can we get outside fields? Oh, no schools will rent outside fields to third parties because of liability issues. I mean, so my summer has been kind of this nonstop, there's the practical day-to-day -day of how to get that day's thing done, but then I've got my state rules and then I've got the national situation. So I've watched more news, I've read more articles, I've talked to more people in the last three months than probably ever in my life. So a lot of, a lot of variables to consider, uh, but you, you plowed through and you, you opened for practice again. Can you walk us through some of the protocols that you decided to implement to maybe be able well, to do that safely? Yeah, I, I can talk how I do this quickly. So just looking at the state and me deciding, we closed down as a business March 12th. So like for everybody was furloughed, the whole company. So 40 full-time, 45 full-time, about 300 additional coaches, um, lacrosse, soccer, volleyball, baseball, across the whole forces of collective of clubs. Um, building shut down, everything shut down. And then the state starts saying in June, okay, you can start. And then I had to make a decision, am I even gonna come back? Should we even do this? All right, let's give it a go. Here's how we're gonna handle it. And so what I decided was no clinics at all, nothing where people can just sign up randomly or drop in or drop out randomly. I was gonna make it travel only, so I know the boys one team at a time at practice, so maximum 20, 22 kids and three coaches or so, and half hour between teams. So one team leaves fully, we can clean the building, do whatever we need to do before another even team, another group of kids even walks into the building. So that was a big change. So you add hours of the day and days of the week in order to get everybody their reps instead of having two or three teams at once potentially. So that was a big change. Things like, um, well, a good chunk of my coaching staff are in their 20s. So please, guys, don't go to the bars. Um, coaching staff has to wear masks at all times, all times. Um, the only time you can take your mask down is if you walk outside away from anybody else. As much to protect us from each other as coaches, and then maybe it helps a little bit from the kids, who knows. And maybe it's just a symbol that we're taking this seriously, that we're not going to get half an hour into the drill and like, oh, you didn't really mean we had to be six feet apart. You know, come on now, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, I wanted that symbolically to be like, nope, we're doing it by the book. So in Ohio, the first two weeks we did this in June, it was no contact whatsoever. Um, I'll take my own sport in lacrosse, which is a full contact sport, six foot minimum spacing. So even trying to wrap my head around, like, how do you run an hour and a half lacrosse practice with no contact and six foot spacing at all time down to kids that are 10 years old, up through big time knuckleheads, middle school, and then the high schoolers who just want to hit because they lost their whole spring season. And it actually went pretty easy. The kids got it. Um, when we do a drill, we'd demonstrate the drill, but we'd have cones lined up and they'd get on cue and the cones would be six feet apart. And as the next boy stepped up to run a drill, everybody would move down one cone. And that was before you started seeing the X's or the spots in grocery stores. So that was sort of a gut instinct of how to do it. Give them a visual cue that seemed to really help. Um, and then I'm a 
here's a weird trans transgression, but I, I'm a massive deadhead. And David Lemieux, who's in charge, he's the archivist for the Grateful Dead, had a listening party with a friend of his, uh, Lucky Bud, if you look it up on Twitter, who's a writer, children's books, up in there, both in BC. And so every day they had a listening party with the two of them in David Lemieux's backyard. And it'd be a photograph, selfie, of Lemieux and Lucky Bud in the background holding up the album they were going to listen to that day. But the hashtag was six feet, bro. And so very quickly that first day I established so that it wasn't the angry adults or semi-adults constantly haranguing the kids, you know, get away from each other and back up. We would just, you know, six feet, bro. And then the kids started six feet, bro. And it kind of turned, you know, a, a, a negative tough situation into just sort of everybody communally got into it. So six feet, bro. That's awesome. It sounds like the kids have reacted pretty well. How do, how's the reaction in general been from kids and parents and coaches? Well, that, that's the interesting part of the whole thing. And Michael kind of went there a couple times hinting at it and not to, these are the people that pay my bills. So I don't want to beat on them too hard. But the other rule that I established from day one is no parents allowed in the building whatsoever under any condition. If they needed a kid or they needed me, they had to text my cell phone and either I'd come out or I'd come out with a kid. And so the parents just dropped them off in the parking lot and either stayed in the parking lot or they went somewhere to, I assume, drink lots of beers and eat wings for an hour and a half and come back and then drunkenly drive their kid to wherever they needed to go. <laughs> but um, uh, having no parents in the building at all for the whole summer for any age group was just this massive blessing probably to the boys more than even me because they were never looking over their shoulders. Ever. And that was not how it would run in a normal year. No, they'd be on the benches. They'd be standing in windows watching and you hear the, the indoor less so outdoor more so, but you definitely have the dad and even mom culture. It's just sort of the nonstop. You know, what are you doing? Look to your right. And you're just like, Oh my God, let the kid play. Um, I, I tend to run my club, everything about why I'm doing it is I'm very much a trans, in, hope to be a transformational coach and club and who I hire to be coaches rather than kind of transactional. And parents tend to be very transactional and use sports. Did we win? Did we lose? How many goals did my kid get? How much playing time did my kid get? all the shit that doesn't matter in any way, shape or form to that kid developing into a better human being or better in my case, the cross player. So by having no parents whatsoever, it, the entire environment is transformational. Uh, very, very rarely would we run a drill. Every once in a while, the older guys to get them kind of, if you can tell the energy level was down, we'd, uh, you know, keep score on a drill and play for burpees. Losing teams got 10, you know? Yeah. What about the, the other side of that? What about parents who were appreciative or found ways to have your back on inserting these protocols? Well, it, it, very interesting. So I did a, a survey monkey right out of the gate and almost 30% of my families chose. So they either wanted no travel whatsoever, but they did want the training or they just opted out. And in the end, about, I think the final number was like 4% opted out altogether. Like, we're just, we're out. 
Um, and we, the biggest hemming and hawing for me wasn't the training with the boys. It's the whole idea of summer travel across is, you know, we're going to go to these tournaments around the country and the younger guys are going to compete. We're going to be awesome. And this will be sweet and get elephant ears, halftime games and, you know, do all the family truckster stuff. And the older guys, the whole push was, you know, was not for me, but, um, for a lot of folks. Uh, the mean what you're doing travel across for or other travel sports is college. My kid's going to get a scholarship. My kid's <laughs> going to go to a great college. He's got to be recruited and seen at these tournaments. Are we going to the best tournaments or the coach is going to be there? I, I'm not into that. I have lots of kids playing in college, but I've got, that could be a whole nother podcast of, I'm much more concerned with fit than I am necessarily like I'm D1. Dude, you're twice as smart as that school. It's like barely a community college. But do you want? Okay. Live that dream, buddy. In a sport that has almost no pro potential or earnings. Well, there not, might not be very much in the way of college sports this coming year. Well, I'm living that too with a son. So where I'm heading for trying to get there fairly fast is the push of the parents is normally kind of hyper and – let's get to the best tournaments, let's win all of our games, let's get trophies, or get my kid into the best school. And by Division One and Division Two, out of the gate said we're pushing the dead period to July 31st. There'll be no Division One or two coaches present at any tournaments or can make any contact with any kids whatsoever. That took that out of the running. And then two weeks into July, Division One and Division Two said dead period goes to August 31st. So instantly it turned it from we're going to the tournaments to get scouted to are we going to go and play? And I just stuck to my guns with the science. I'm like, we're not going to that tournament in Baltimore because that region's on fire with COVID right now. We're just not going to do it. Um, so I canceled two tournaments on my own and then tournaments started canceling as well. Other clubs handled it differently. At that point, they started hunting for tournaments, and it turned out Indiana, which has this insane facility with like 30 outdoor fields and eight indoor fields and another 30 baseball diamonds. It's called Grand Park. It's in Carmel. Uh, they were the only place in the entire Midwest that we could even go to if we wanted to. And I was just like, I'm not about it. I am not interested in hanging out with 300 other teams from all the states that are also on fire, like Illinois and Michigan, parts of Ohio. So we didn't do any travel at all this summer. And that was a tough decision for my part. Financially, you know, the, the, the business end of it, it was a very easy decision to Michael's initial question of here's my hard and fast rules. Would I take my sons and go to this tournament? No, well then I'm not taking any families. And so we just figured out financially how to do it differently. And we got through the summer with no issues and very, very, very few parents like two have contacted me out of over a hundred kids. Uh, basically, you know, this was bullshit. This isn't what we wanted. We should have gone to this other club. And I got letter after letter, text after text, phone call after phone call. Thank you so much for taking care of my kid and doing this right. He loved it. He had a great experience. It was terrific. So, Do you think you'll wind up having a, a tournament there in Cleveland with your Cleveland teams? 
So the problem, you know, they changed the rule. One of the tournaments that got canceled um, is a big, a major national group that runs tournaments. But it's interesting because it's not run by, it is definitely a multi-million dollar business for sure. But the entire, the entire group is former players and they're almost all Ivy Leaguers. So even though that's their entire business, they were doing it based on science as well. So one of the things that happened in Ohio was they changed the rule to in order for a team to come to Ohio to play, you had to have a negative, the entire team, the entire coaching staff and any administrators had to have a COVID test within 72 hours of the tournament and it had to be negative. So I don't, obviously that's beyond impossible. I had a friend get a negative test back yesterday and it had taken 28 days. So 72 hours clearly isn't the window that's viable. So I don't know if that was their way of saying we're not going to allow any tournaments in Ohio without getting the more red part of the state pissed off. You know, you're being Nazis. Um, and then saying, no, we can allow them. You just got to get the testing. But they knew that nobody could get testing within 72 hours. Or teams from other states would be like, well, screw that. Let's not go to Ohio. Let's go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Maybe we move on to our final question, related question. Michael, you want to shoot? Yes, yes. We pull it up here. Uh, oh, this is something I'm super curious about. So, and Chris, I think you're an expert to answer this. What are parenting mistakes that you see through the eyes of a coach? And it sounds like you talked about one already, which is this, like focusing on the wrong stuff, but uh, you've seen some stuff. So I'm really, I'm really curious. I've seen some insane stuff um, and very positive stuff. And then I, I'm, a, I'm a father of two boys who grew up playing and did travel and both started, you know, they started playing in college and my younger son is going to be a senior, is going to be the captain, if it all happens, of his college lacrosse team. So I've been the dad um, very much so as well, including with, again, my younger son, the one that's going to be a senior this year. He was a national blue chipper twice. So the highest end recruiting tournaments invited to and D, you know, all the D1 coach, 60 D1 coaches watching one game. And so I've lived it too, where you see the insane people screaming and going nuts and you, know, you blew it. That was your opportunity. My rule, you know, since Michael likes the simple rules, I've had a very simple rule with my boys since they were five and six years old up through my college son leading scorer on his team. After every game, I ask him the first thing out of my mouth is, did you have fun? I've done that their entire lives. They know that's what I'm going to ask them. They know I genuinely mean it, even if they got, you know, their butts kicked or whatever. Like, did you have fun? What was your favorite part? I, I'm glad you, you put it that way. I used to coach swimming. I'd coach some high school swimming and some club sports swimming. I was a swimmer for a long time. And one of the coaches that I worked with that I really respected when the season would start or if a new kid would come onto the team, he'd have a meeting with the parents and he'd say, look, you, your job as a parent is universal love and support. My job as the coach is technique and criticism and pushing the kid hard. But when they're done and they come to you, just love and support. That's the coach's role to criticize them. Even if you know about the sport, that's not your role to tell them how to, how to do it. 
Uh, and then he would have, as recommended viewing, uh, the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, yeah. which is all about that relationship where the, the parent realizes that his kid has quickly transcended uh, anything he would ever be able to do on a chessboard uh, and has to recruit Ben Kingsley to be the coach. And then he really has to balance, uh, you know, the, the preparation that the coach wants the kid to go through and just letting the kid be a kid. So that was the role that the parent carved out in that movie. Uh, and there's a funny scene in the middle of that movie at a chess tournament where the people running the tournament are, are laying out the rules for spectators. Uh, you know, no yelling advice, no heckling, no insults, no, uh, you know, pushing the other people in the stands. Any physical altercation, you'll be removed immediately. And you think, of course, that they're talking to a bunch of 10-year-olds and then the camera pans out. And this is the tournament administrators talking to all the parents and making sure the parents understand how they're supposed to behave during the tournament. Yeah, I've, uh, my parents have to sign a form um, at the start of every season that here's, here's the club rules and policies and no, no gray area. And one of the big aspects, the, the largest part of the body of that letter is comportment of parents, not kids. Right. It's not like if your kid punches somebody in the face and throwing them off the team. It's not even part of it. It's I'll, I'll have that conversation with the kid and the parent if that happens. It's if I've got to come over if a ref stops a game because you're yelling stuff from the sideline. If I've got other parents complain. If I hear, you know, we're going to ask you to leave. I have. I've I've kicked parents out of tournaments. I've kicked parents. I had one a couple of years ago that was so bad, I banned the parents from traveling to the tournaments. They couldn't be on site. They couldn't be on the fields. They could stay back at the hotel if they insisted on driving or the other kid can take the, uh, could carpool with somebody else. But you know, this family was banned. But they desperately wanted their son to keep playing. I said, all right, here's the only way he keeps playing. You, you basically don't exist in my life or the club's life anymore. But we're happy, what? We're happy to have your kid. What do you think about America like has caused this, I would just say like perversion of what youth sports should be about? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, go, ahead. go ahead. Nope. Nope. I'm interested in what you there's think. Of, <laughs> I know. I know what I think. There's lots of articles. Um, early on, the articles were kind of attributing a lot of it to the rise of sports center. And um, well, even Certainly not offended, but several times in this podcast, Michael, you said I'm an expert. And I think attaching words like expert to somebody who's leading a group can really cause issues. Because then if anything goes sideways, well, you're the expert. You know, why did you let this happen? Or why did you correct this? Or why didn't you control all of this? And so I think that um, that fallacy that there even are experts, even amongst the experts, that they're not humans, that like they've got this on lockdown. Hmm. But I think a lot of it is sports center and this idea that, and there's money, that there's so much money and it's so hard. I, I, I've had parents tell me I'm a liar hmm. when I try to explain to them, even in division one, if you're getting $6,000 a year to go to a $67,000 school, you're doing well in college lacrosse because there's only 12.4 12, 12. scholarships per team in division one. 
And if you carry a roster of 50 plus guys, do the simple math. They're, they're, they're only basketball and football are fully funded. Basketball and football pays for basically all the women's sports and most of the men's sports. You're going to see coming out of COVID, if they could even do sports in college, um, Stanford. I mean, Stanford's got, you know, literally more money than God. Yeah. And the smartest people on the planet. And they've won the all, what's it called? It's, it's basically the all-sport trophy for Division One. I Meaning you combine the records of all of your men's and all of your women's teams in every single sport. They've won like three of the last five years. And they just announced they're eliminating, just eliminating 11 sports outright. Because of COVID. And you're going to, UCLA is talking about dumping football because if we're not going to play games and it's not fully funded, then we can't do it. We can't afford it. So I think the financial end of college sports, um, one, is going to be severely affected by COVID. But also just this whole idea of, you know, I want my kid to go to the best college and get this scholarship. There are no scholarships. My son's getting significantly more money if you want to really make it kind of almost crass by going division three than he would have if he went division one. Because if you want division one, if you get any money for sports at all, let's say it's 5,000 bucks a year and your school really is 62 to 67,000. It's a private division one school, you know, Notre Dame, you know, if you will, um, you can't get any other grant money. They can't bundle it with academic grant money. So that's all the money you're going to get. Um, but by Ben going to a division three school where there is no sports scholarships at all, nothing, not a penny for sports, but you take his GPA and leadership situations and everything else and put it together. I mean, he's paying way less than half of his tuition. I mean, he's getting this year, especially he's getting a really to me, a shocking amount of grant money, way more than he'd get in division one or division two. So that goes back to what you were saying earlier about other kids and focus on the fit, not just maximize, I want to go to a D1 program. College is hard as hell. I mean, I don't care what college you go to. I mean, yeah, okay, Harvard's hard. We all know that. But I mean, Bowling Green in Ohio, just a kind of middling state school. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to go to class. It's hard to be on your own. It's hard to be around other kids that maybe are or aren't doing things that you ought to be getting into. And you add being an athlete and all those hours of training for almost no glory at all for most schools, even division one. I, I mean, you don't have to win every year. It's, it's very, very difficult to be a college athlete. So if you aren't in a situation where you feel like you're at home or it feels like it's right, or it feels like, yeah, I love it here. I love, I love the, the, the teammates, the school, if I blew my knee out tomorrow, I wouldn't leave no matter what. I love this school. Um, to me, is so much more important than saying, you know, yeah, I got a scholarship. I'm going to go play at Fairfield. You told me you hate the East. I do. You told me you hate Fairfield. I do. The school's bullshit. Then why are you there? I got an offer. Like, that makes no sense to me at all. The college kid wants and then the odds are that those guys, if they're not, and, and girls, it, you know, burnout, an injury that's maybe career ending, and then it's alcohol and drugs because they're depressed and they don't want to be there and they feel trapped. But if you go someplace where it's truly a fit, you know, you're good. You're all good. Oh, man, you're, you're really selling it right now. Michael, what do you think? Are you convinced? Are you ready to send your boys off to Ohio for summer lacrosse camp in a couple of years? <laughs> if so, will you comply with the uh, behavior expectations for parents? 
Uh, it's, I mean, it's funny because, you know, Chris, Chris describes exactly what, you know, my approach has been with you sports and, and my guys, you know, I ask them, do you even want me to be there? And sometimes they say, no, yeah. I, I don't go. Um, yeah. I always ask the kids why, you know, why is your no? Did something happen last time? Are you just tired? Do you want to be doing something else? Have you done four practices in the last five days and you're just like, okay, <laughs> I'm ready just to play some Xbox or go you know, ride my bike around the neighborhood. Great. So I always want to delve and make sure that there isn't an issue there, but giving kids a break, you know, absolutely. hundred percent. They're just kids. They're just kids. I mean, I'm looking at parents ride some eight-year-old about something, and then I see him take his helmet off. I'm like, this kid's barely out of the holding his bear phase or wants to sit on your lap and watch Star Wars. Hmm. And, like, you're going to ride him about missing that shot at the end of the game that went over the top of the goal? It's just wacko to me. So maybe that's the simple rule for, for parents is remember your kids are just kids. I say it all the time. I, I say it all the time to parents. Well, he doesn't really get back on defense, and I really wish he did this better. Why does he try so hard? And He's just a kid. He'll figure it out. He's doing these other things well. Maybe he's not doing everything well, or maybe he won't even get into it. But thank you for listening to my articles and everything I send out on my Twitter feed that's like encouraging multi-sport athletes because you know what? Does your son still, <laughs> I mean, the cynical answer, of course, amongst coaches is you're watching a kid and you're like, oh my God, I hope he still owns a baseball mitt because this is not his sport. Um, but try everything, do everything. Why can't you be at practice Thursday night? Well, I've got this hockey thing. Great. I'm glad you're doing another sport. You know, sort it out when you get into you know upper middle school or when it's time to go to high school and you can only play two sports anymore in high school. It, Three sport athlete basically doesn't exist, but what's your fall and spring or what's your two sports? And only one of them, by the way, you're going to be good at. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think maybe if you're not good at lacrosse, don't jump to baseball. Maybe try swimming. Swimming, tennis, golf. You know, are you more a kid that's comfortable with golf because you frankly don't like other human beings and you're like really in your own happy place when you're you and your putter are on your own? Are you a kid that, you know, me way too ADD for swimming? I mean, I'll just describe swimming as fast as I can. Chase the line, chase the line, chase the line, flip. Oh, chase the line, I chase just brought that up as, a, as an inside joke because Michael and I were both swimmers. Uh, oh, yeah. No, totally. That's why I went there. But all I right. couldn't well, possibly do it. I wanted to hit somebody. Well, okay, that could be your last comment for the podcast. I wanted to hit somebody from Chris Davis. <laughs> That'd be my uh, time. Michael, do you have any last no, comments you'd no. like to add? No. Oh, Chris has more he wants to say. No, I appreciate the time to talk. It's a very complicated, it's tough to do it in a small, short format. Um, sports, like, it, it, one of the most important things is both for kids and adults is it brings out a lot of tensions. You know, it, it's you're deciding to kind of be in a, a crucible that, are you good or aren't you good? Are you going to be a star or not a star? Are you going to be able to score the goal to win the game? Or are you going to miss it every time? But that's probably more like life than scoring it every time. And you kind of get used to dealing with the ups and downs. That's how I approach the COVID thing with the boys. This is one more challenge. Like you either crumble by it or you like figure it out and make the best of it and let's move on. 
Okay, that's a, that's a better note to end our podcast on. I'm going to do the, uh, the outro music here. Thanks for being on the podcast, Chris. Michael, fun as always. Absolutely. Thanks. Good job, everybody. Thanks for having me. We will, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody.